Welcome, welcome. We're going to be starting in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't we start there? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today we would taste and see that you are good. I pray that through uh, your word and you alone, that your grace, the the beauty of your word, the beauty of sanctification would be made clear um, to the saints in the room tonight. I just pray that you would speak, that I would get out of the way. Lord, I pray that, uh, that this text would encourage and convict tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I'll, before we start, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, um, just, just to allow for context, talk about what Chase um, discussed last week in verses 22 through 25 of First uh, Peter chapter 1. And um, so basically, he preached on the importance of uh, knowing God's word and having a desire and affection for scripture. He talked about cherishing scripture and desiring to be governed by God's word. And he said some pretty serious things. I, was, I know that as Christians, um, we kind of, we say those things, but do we mean those? And one thing I really appreciate about Chase when he preaches on those things, the, uh, the passion behind the words that he's saying. And he said, you know, if you're not governed by Scripture, um, you aren't a Christian. Those are tough words to hear because I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians um, struggle with being governed by Scripture in general. So it was really emphasizing um, the need for us to value and cherish the word. Um, so as we, as we get into the text today, I kind of want to provide context, so I'm going to run through quickly um, Chase's uh, text from last week. Having purified your souls, this is starting in verse 22 of chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's, I mean, I I love that text. The the fact that we know that God's word is going to accomplish what he he set out. It's not going to be lost. We can can value God's word because he tells us that it's actually going to last um, so, so today, I think my, my broad point, uh, overarching point tonight, will be that um, we need to know, we know we are Christ if we've tasted the goodness of God, if we continually hunger for God's word, if we grow in holiness, and if we put sin to death. So that sounds like a lot, but I promise that it'll, it'll be simple, and, um, and really, the text that we go through tonight what walks us right through that. Um, we see in the last verses of chapter 1 that I just talked about with, with uh, Chase um, that Peter affirms the perfect regenerating work of the Spirit that brought these individuals to salvation. He references that we've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but imperishable. We have an eternal promised inheritance and have been eternally adopted into the body of Christ. We were born again due to the power of the gospel. This gospel is the power of God unto salvation, as Paul says in Romans 1. The gospel is communicated to us by God's word. This gospel is good news that was preached to the saints that Peter's writing to. So that kind of allows for us to understand 
where we were and where we're going today um, in 1 Peter chapter 2. So as we start, I'm actually going to, so if you look at the text, we're going through the first three verses, and I'm actually going to go in reverse order. Um, We're going to start in verse 3 and go backwards. And the reason for that is um, when we look at verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, I think it's a clear reference to us encountering God, um, the unity that we have with God, our salvation. It's, it's an obvious reference to that. So we have this intimate knowing with God. It's an affirmation of our salvation. So if we are this way, um, then all of these things should follow. So we're going to start in verse 3, and I think that connects really well to verse 23 in chapter 1, which says, you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable. So again, we have these multiple affirmations that he's talking to believers and that we are those believers that he's talking to. So let's talk about what it means to taste that the Lord is good. I think the book of Psalms does a really good job of uh, elaborating on what it means to taste um, and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember three or four weeks ago, Chase talked about how we ought to have a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverence, um, just, just a couple weeks ago. So, so that hits on, on both what we're talking about tonight and this other theme that Peter, Peter was obviously reading the book of Psalms when he wrote this um, to those in Asia Minor. So what specifically are we tasting and how do we enjoy God in this way? Well, in Psalm 119, 103, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 19, 9 through 10 says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even, more, or even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So there's this tasting of the rules. There's this affection, this desire for God's word and God's rules. How do we encounter God? How do we enjoy that? How do we taste what he's given us? We, we get it through the word. Um, the blessing of the Bible cannot be overlooked in the believer's life, and we tend to do it on a daily basis. Um, at least if, if you actually believe that this is the inspired word of God, um, then it shouldn't be collecting dust on your shelf. And I think that um, Chase, Chase hit that really well last week as well. Very, uh, very convicting thought. So if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you have encountered God. You recognize that his rules are good. God's rules are law, which is also a lot of times in um, Psalm 119, and we sing about it with uh, the psalms that we sing at church here. Um, we're talking about the law, but it also can be used interchangeably with the word, with scripture. Um, the law is really God's revelation to man. So we see Peter's reinforcing that we must encounter God. And in Psalms, we clearly see that God's law or word is how we truly encounter, taste, and see God. I think another way um, that came to mind in my study, and um, it, it may take us off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important that we value um, the ordinances. And I thought about communion and how though the bread and the wine or the bread and the grape juice symbolize what Christ did, Christ's body and blood, Um, At the same time, it's one of the only ways in which we experientially experience God's means of grace, meaning that communion is a way that we taste and see that God is good. Not in that um, it doesn't uh, change, as as Roman Catholics would say, it doesn't change into the actual body of Christ, um, but we do believe that it's a means of grace, that it's a blessing that we get to partake together as a body um, 
in the body of Christ. Um, so so that's, that's an experiential aspect of how we actually taste and see the goodness of God and we're commanded to in Scripture. So to truly taste God's goodness, you must be his child. So if you are not his child, if you are a child of, First John says, a child of the devil um, called children of wrath before we're regenerated, if you are not, you don't experience the, uh, the sweetness of God's presence and therefore cannot experience, uh, you can't taste and see that the Lord is good in any real way. So we were formerly children of wrath, deserving of hell, but God chose us in Christ for adoption as sons and daughters. That's Ephesians 1. It was nothing you did. You taste the goodness of God because his decision was to give it to you. So then you have been changed by him. You have been indwelt with the Spirit. You once loved your sin, now you love God's law. That, there has to be a shift in your life. You have to be able to recognize pre-regeneracy. And now, oftentimes, if, if you're raised in the church as I was, that can be difficult, trying to determine, well, where was the exact moment? Um, I don't think it's always necessary. But if we look at, um, say, a, a 40-year-old man is saved, he needs to be able to look at his previous 40 years having, not having Christ and be able to look at his new desires now, the way that things have changed 180 degrees. There has to be that difference. That's why faith is always accompanied by repentance. There's this recognition of sin and the need to turn from it. And that's what happens when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You will not keep on sinning, First John talks about. So you've been changed. Now you love God's law. That's, that's a wild thing in itself, loving God's law, loving the precepts of God. Um, I think that, that can be really difficult. A lot of churches, um, a lot of Christians, we really like to emphasize the grace of God, but we don't talk about his law, his standards. And we find a lot of that, e- even in the New Testament, we see plenty of examples of these leaders, these apostles, telling the, the, um, the churches of that time, hey, you need to turn from sin. You're sinning here and here and here, and this is what God has to say about that. So, we, so before, when we were unregenerate, we followed a strict diet of rebelliousness, but then we tasted and saw that the Lord was good. So there's that contrast between... Uh, there's going to be a lot of um, references um, to, to eating and food in my message today because that's just what we're talking about. We talk about um, later on, we're going to talk about the pure spiritual milk, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. So, so there's this, um, the bit beforehand, we were consuming all the things of the world that we thought gave us pleasure and fulfillment. Um, and the emptiness that that brought, obviously God uses in bringing us to himself. So this blessing of tasting the goodness of God is a direct reference to your rebirth, your regeneration, the giving of a new heart and new desires. We talked about that earlier. If you've tasted the goodness of God, you've experienced the grace-filled, initiating work of the Holy Spirit. You're different than you once were. You were dead in sins but are now alive in Christ. You have a new identity. That's something that's really important in the Christian life. We have to understand what our identity is. You have to, right from the very beginning, there has to be, like we talked about, that there's that shift, but there's that new identity, that putting on of Christ. And, and um, that, that cannot be, I think the, the miracle of salvation is that shift that the Holy Spirit gives us, those new desires, that new heart. And I think a lot of times people look for miraculous things outside of 
the miracle that's occurred within all of us as, as you know, being believers. Um, let's not overlook that as Christians, the, miracle, the first miracle that we encountered. Because you've been changed, you now desire a spiritual food. You need sustenance. No true Christian can live off their own conceptions, philosophies, and interpretations regarding God. Though they will sometimes try, and that happens within the church plenty. I think there's, there's plenty of times we rely on ourselves and our own ideas of God, what we were maybe taught by our parents or grandparents, family um, leaders, and you have this idea of God that you've created in your mind. But have you gone to Scripture and, and heard what God has actually said about himself? So it will leave you malnourished when you do rely on yourself in those instances, when you do leave scripture and seek philosophies and worldly wisdom. True spiritual food is God's word illuminated by the Holy Spirit working in us. I'll repeat that. So true spiritual food is God's word illuminated by the Holy Spirit working in us. So the only way anyone can read scripture and, um, and they can, you know, maybe grasp some nuggets here and there, maybe take it with them, but it doesn't affect you. It doesn't change you. It is not a means of grace that God uses if you're a child of wrath, if you have not been adopted into his family, if you haven't put your faith in Christ. So next I want to talk about spiritual nour- nourishment. So going from, we talked about verse 3, now we're going to go in reverse order back to verse 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, if indeed we've tasted that the Lord is good, we will long for pure spiritual milk. Sometimes references to milk are not always positive in the New Testament. The type of milk referred to in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, shows that the immature believer needs milk, while the mature believer consumes solid food, doctrinal, you know, deep doctrine, solid teaching. Um, the mature believer is ready for that. The milk is a beginner-level teaching of the gospel in that instance in Hebrews. But here what we're talking about is pure spiritual milk. So those two words before milk um, here kind of help to expose that it's, it's much deeper and it's much more um, meaningful than the type of milk that we were talking about before. Not that bi- it's not a beginner-level teaching of the gospel. Peter's referencing, uh, Peter's referencing the difference in that it points to the revelation of God. So, so basically, by using these two Greek terms, logikon, meaning in accordance with reality, and adalon, meaning uncontaminated, and these are the two words for pure and spiritual, we get a clear understanding that the milk is perfect, the perfect pure revelation of God. It's uncontaminated and causes very real change in those who partake. Also, the last verses of the previous chapter, we see Peter emphasizing the enduring power of the word of God. Um, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord you know, stands forever. That, that is just before we get into this text here. So I believe that you know, there's, there's obviously a story of covenant redemption talked all throughout Scripture, pointing to Christ. But I think that su- surrounding all of this, uh, obviously all of Scripture points to Christ, but surrounding th- these verses, we see um, it's all couched in uh, a need for the Word of God. And, and I think that it clearly points to this pure sp- spiritual milk being the Word of God specifically. And, and maybe, and, and some people would interpret this as... Um, not just the word of God, but even more deeply, uh, the gospel message, which I think, again, points back to Christ and that overarching covenant of redemption that was occurring in there. So in both ways, the word of God 
is the story of Christ and our redemption. That is what scripture gives us. And um, I think that's how we are to understand what this pure spiritual milk is. So then we should long for the word. As Chase said last week, if God's word doesn't govern you, um, you, you may not even be a Christian. I think that's really important that that resonates with us. During the late 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, who's been referenced many times in uh, sermons, all of us like Charles Spurgeon, he's from the uh, 19th century, so he preached a lot in the late 1800s. And he, he said he believed that most Christians read the newspaper more than they read the Bible. Obviously, um, I think we probably read our Bibles more than we read the newspaper nowadays, but I think if you were to take that and maybe make it a, uh, a modern statement, we are definitely um, more engaged in our phones or any type of screen than we would be um, Scripture. And, and that should be convicting. I, I read that uh, it takes 71 hours to listen to the Bible all the way through, 71 hours and the average American spends that much time. I, I think it was like three weeks. They spend 71 hours looking at a screen um, in one way or another. Um, so, so the fact that you can do that in the span of three weeks, but you can't read the Bible in a year, um, it, it should be convicting. We're saying that this is the word of God. We're saying that we believe these truths and that God is the, the most important thing in our life, right? It's like simple statements. Yes, I, I affirm that. But, but do you live that way because he's communicating to you and you haven't even read his, his full revelation? Uh, Robert Chapman said that the great cause of neglecting scripture is not a want of time, but a want of heart. There is some idol taking the place of Christ. So, so what that means is, he, what he's saying is, it's not that we don't prioritize, we can't prioritize enough time to read the Bible, it's that we prioritize other things over it. And it really exposes what we value. And that was convicting for me reading that. I'm like, well, in what ways am I wasting time? In what ways am I, am I not being disciplined um, in those areas where I could clearly you know, spend 30 minutes, maybe less a day, doing whatever you know, type of entertainment or, or what have you. So I think that that should cause us to, to check. Um, are we feeding on spiritual milk? Are we feeding on the word of God? What are you prioritizing over spiritual milk? Um, I think that we're much more capable of prioritizing things um, than we think. Um, everyone is busy. Everyone has a life in which they, they have things scheduled out. But it's really, what are you willing to prioritize? That's the bottom line. How are you willing to manage your time? Um, God has given us the gift of time, and he's given us the gift of his word. Um, we need to prioritize his word over other things that are taking up that time. Um, so jumping um, back into the text, it says, like newborn infants, right? So a newborn knows how to prioritize, and that it only knows one thing, that it wants to eat. So because a newborn knows what is vital... It's a part of its nature as a child to only want to eat. I'm the oldest of six, so I've experienced this many times. Babies cry and cry and cry, and 99% of the time, it's because they want to eat. Um, They want milk, right? And that's what Peter is referencing here. He's referencing the spiritual milk that we need to be feeding on. And not just, now when we see the word newborn, that doesn't mean that he's talking only to new Christians. He says we need to be like newborn infants. So this newborn infant, all it wants to do is eat. It knows what it wants. It knows what it needs. And that's what 
we need as Christians throughout our Christian life, that should never go stale. We should never not want Scripture. We should never not want God's Word. I'm usually a double negative there. That's not great. Never not want. But, um, but I think that it, it's important to understand that the, the analogy that he's using, or at least the, the, the type of um, images that he's creating with, with a child, we, we kind of look at that and are like, well, what does that mean for me, though? When I've, I've read through this verse multiple times, and I'm like, is he talking to new Christians? What, is this, what does this mean for me? Yeah, it mean, it's for every single Christian. He's talking to all believers. This is important for everyone. This pure spiritual milk is always for us. Scripture is always for us. So as Christians, I just said that. <laughs> um, so, so I think that it's important. Okay, I, I want to jump to Matthew 18.3. In Matthew 18.3, Jesus says to his disciple, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless you become like children, I'm going to jump to uh, in Mark 10.15, he also says that we should receive the kingdom of God like a child. So we see Christ consistently telling his audience, there's multiple times in the Gospels where he's talking about how we are to be like these children, how we are to act like a child. But in this way, he's telling his audience that they should model their spiritual lives after children, meaning they must see and humble themselves as children in order to recognize how needy they truly are. They bring nothing while God provides everything for them. Just as a child is unable to properly provide for and nourish himself, so a believer must realize that they are unable in and of themselves to be spiritually provided for and nourished. You can't do it alone. We talked about that early. Worldly wisdom, um, your, your own philosophies, theology books, it's not going to do um, any good for you if you don't affirm what God clearly says in Scripture. You have to go there first. You have to feed on that first. So in the same way an infant child relies on their parent to provide nourishment, we look to the word of our father. And as he has provided nourishment, even though he has provided nourishment, we ignore it. Inside the pages of Scripture is all the wisdom we need. Second Timothy says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this milk that the Father provided makes us equipped for every good work. That means all you need for life and godliness is in God's word. But we go to so many other things, don't we? We go to so many other things to um, educate ourselves, to uh, deal with the world, to um, feel purpose. Um, we, we create idols out of things that are good gifts of God. Um, things like family and food and relationships, we turn those into sins and idols because we value those things more than we value the word of God. We don't let it regulate and govern our lives. So we talked about who we are and how we are to be nourished by the word so that we can grow up in our salvation. So staying in verse 2, I want to talk about what it means to grow up into salvation. So it says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, we talked about that, that by it you may grow up into salvation. To many this sounds like salvation is a process. Um, And people kind of cringe at the idea of salvation being a process. But I would say, yes, absolutely. Salvation is a process. 
Many people would say, but I thought that we're saved by grace through faith alone. A process of salvation sounds like gradually gaining some type of salvation that we might achieve further down the road. We're saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. So our justification is by faith alone, but it will always be followed up by sanctification. I think that um, a lot of times uh, when we talk about this, people kind of cringe because that's exactly what Roman Catholics believe. They believe that you are sanctified. There is a process of cleansing that happens throughout your life. And then if you're good enough, then you can skip purgatory and jump on into heaven. But chances are you're going to have to go to purgatory and be purified a little bit more. Um, So you never have that peace of salvation, of being justified by God. Whereas we understand as Protestants that we are saved by faith alone. Um, So they they have it reversed in that we are saved, we are justified initially, we are sanctified, which is growing in holiness, what God does in our life, and then we're glorified in heaven, um, living in eternity with the Father. So if we go back and look at our text, I think it clearly points to the salvific process of sanctification when it talks about Um, growing up into salvation. I think that's a direct reference to our sanctification. So it's not that we are growing up into our justification, meaning being made right with God, but it is growing after we have been initially saved, regenerated, justified, that process of sanctification of God making us holy um, in our Christian life. Philippians 2 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we have a responsibility to be obedient to the holy commands of God. But he is the one doing the work. He is sanctifying. He is making us holy. As Paul said in Corinthians, um, I planted, or 1 Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. The beginning of 1 Peter, there's a reference to the spirit sanctifying. I actually preached on that right at the very beginning. This is a guarantee. We can have certainty that if we've truly been born again, born again, we will grow up in our salvation. We will be sanctified. We, we will be able to look back and see how God has grown us in holiness. As a Christian, can you look back a year ago and see how God has changed you, how God has sanctified you? If not, that should be a cause for concern. You should you should look at what you know, possible sins have been inhibiting that, what, what ways you possibly may be grieving the Holy Spirit. So we have new affections and hate sin more as our sanctification um, grows. This growth in holiness will result in true and righteous obedience. And it's a sure sign that we're, and what is a sure sign that we're growing up in our salvation? Peter says that we're, we will show that we're growing in our salvation by putting away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And that is verse one. Like I said, we're going backwards here. So this is the way in which we show our obedience. Our sanctification manifests itself and that we are going to put these things away. So moving to verse one. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So we've learned thus far that because we've tasted that the Lord is good, we will have a continual hunger for God's word, which will then lead to our sanctification. So with this last verse, I want to talk about how our sanctification should manifest itself, what types of obedience we should desire, and I think Peter gives a clear idea of what that is. 
he says to put away these specific sins. We can see them right, right there in, in Scripture. I think we can all admit that we've been guilty of um, these sins at various times in our life. 1 John 1 says, The truth is not in us if we say we have not sinned. One of the great things about looking at Scripture is we get to see all the leaders, all the men that God used, um, these sinful human beings that he brought about all of this change. That should encourage us as believers within the church that God uses broken vessels to glorify himself. So, so don't ever feel like your, your guiltiness or your, your previous sin keeps you um, from pursuing leadership, um, whether that be uh, leadership as far as personal discipleship, teaching. There, there are important ways in which we should serve the body and serve the church as Scripture prescribes. But we're not to identify with the sin, Scripture says. We're a new creation in Christ. We're to put those sins away. So we know that we've been guilty of these but Peter's telling us, put away these sins. 1 Corinthians 6, I feel like it's, it's a very clear text, and also it's one of those things that I find extremely encouraging when talking to other believers, because we get to look at each other and say, um, and such were some of you, and such were, were we. We can look at each other and say, we were this way. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know, Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's, that's amazing. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, that, just that, that last, verse 11, um, it is such, it's a reminder for us as Christians that, um, that God's grace is, is so powerful um, when it comes to our, our previous lives, our previous sin, what we identified with, and that he can change that and give you new desires um, what, what a miracle. How amazing. So this verse clearly points to the new identity of those in Corinth. They previously identified with their sins. They were known by these things. They were thieves, homosexuals, drunkards, and swindlers, but no longer. They were washed. They put away those sins as we must put away our sin. We must kill it. Don't identify with it. We're not to identify as thieving Christians, as adulterous Christians, as idolatrous Christians, as gay Christians, as, as lying Christians. All of these sins that are outlined, we see clearly in Scripture. We're not to identify with that anymore. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When we're saved, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We lay aside sin. We no longer identify with it. If we still cling to the sin while wearing the righteousness of Christ, we demean Christ. We dishonor God. So you, you, can't, allow, you can't allow that sin to... I, I've even heard pastors talk about um, alcoholics. I'm an alcoholic. Well, how long have you been sober? sober? Uh, 25 years. Okay, doesn't seem like you're an alcoholic. It seems like God has, 
given you, uh, has helped you to overcome through the spirit. Obviously, we give God the credit in these instances, but when we identify with the previous sin, it actually serves to serve as a reminder instead of living in the grace of God and allowing him to get the glory and overcoming that, um, you're, you're still sitting in that muck. We should leave that behind um, and identify with Christ. And while that doesn't mean that we are perfect Christians the moment that we're saved, right? That doesn't mean that uh, you know, there's a switch that's flipped and, uh, and all of a sudden you don't struggle with anything, but it means that you are convicted of those sins. It means that you are seeking to repent of those sins, and it means that you're seeking scripture and the spiritual nourishment that comes with the word of God. So when Peter starts in verse one of, chap- or verse one of chapter two, he says, so, this is a clear reference to what he had just written previous. So he says, so put away all malice and deceit. So he's referencing what happened previously. Because of this, do this. He's saying that because you've been reborn and are filled with love, do this. He talks about brotherly love. He talks about our new birth in Christ. So because of these things, and now in verse 1, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So I want to talk a little bit about each of these, um, each of these sins and maybe how it affects us. Malice, I think all of the rest of these sins could fall under. Malice is um, ill will or evil intent, but it's a posture of the heart, so it's internal. You can have malice for others and they not know it, and that is still sin. Maybe you don't speak it, but you feel it every time you see them, if there's a certain person in your life. Do you have an internal bitterness towards someone? Um, I think a lot of times uh, people on social media, um, they prolong this bitterness because either um, you react uh, out of anger because you dislike someone, so maybe you like unfriend them or unfollow them, or you follow them and um, you continue every single time you see them pop up on your timeline, those thoughts of whatever bothered you about them, um, they, they come to the surface every single time. You haven't overcome that sin if you're holding bitterness against people, and I think Again, there's a lot of people that you encounter that then you continually encounter on social media more than you would in your day-to-day life, and that's a struggle, and I think that we should fight that bitterness and recognize um, that it's a sin. A, a lot of times, I've heard, I've heard pastors say, um, you need to cut toxic people out of your life, or you need to uh, cut, you know, get, get rid of the haters, right? That's, that's completely wrong. You, you should love the, the haters. You should love those people that are toxic. We're not called to, to shun those, especially unbelievers. We're not called to shun. We're called to love. And, and we're going to get into how love is really the response to all of these sins. That is the thing that helps us to overcome every single one of these. Um, so we don't, we don't cut people out. We don't turn our face from them. We deal with the sin that we have, which is malice in our heart, And then we love that person in response. Being deceitful, that's the the second sin that's that's confronted here that we're to put away. Doesn't always mean outright lying. Are you purposely giving a false impression? Are you purposely manipulating others to achieve your own ends? 
Are you stealing time from work and telling your employer you deserve the same pay? You are being deceitful if you are, uh, you know, saying that you're working and you're not working. Um, there's, there's little white lies, I think, that, that many Christians especially fall into. Well, I'm not really hurting anyone. Um, we need to have a strong conviction over these things because the Scripture says we're to put these things away. And we need to be, it starts with conviction, and we're convicted, again, I, I keep going, I'm, I'm repeating myself multiple times, but I think it's important. It's the word of God that's going to do that, and it's the Holy Spirit that's going to help us to understand the word of God in that way. Hypocrisy. In a way, I think that all the sins that we're looking at tonight are a form of hypocrisy also, just in the same way that they're, they're all malicious, and that we say we love the things of God, we say that we believe his law, we affirm these truths, and yet we live um, maybe privately or, or publicly in a way that doesn't give God glory, that, would, that other people would look, wow, uh, he says this, but he lives this way. Um, Augustine said, the problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He does not want to be holy, he only wants to seem to be holy. He's more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. The approbation of men matters more to him than the approval of God. Wow, when I read that, I, I mean, that's, that's so good, and it gets to the, the center. I mean, that's what the, the Pharisees were, right? They were appearing to be righteous, while all, all the while not believing in the coming Messiah, not believing that, um, not actually living and having those affections and desires that they were publicly professing and claiming. There wasn't a change of heart. So we have to have new desires, new affections. So do you seek to hide your sins in order to appear righteous? James clearly states that we're to confess our sins one to another. Are you doing that? Are you practicing what you preach? The truths we profess should result in a public active obedience to God's word, but also our internal spiritual affection. That should change. We should be obedient in both word and deed. So moving on from hypocrisy, we we have two more, envy and slander. Envy is desiring what others have. Why do you desire what others have? I think that, going back to social media, um, I think that social media is kind of a cesspool of envy because it's everyone just uh, throwing up the best version of themselves or the best version of whatever they're doing so that others can go, wow, I want to do that. Um, or I wish I was doing that. I think that it, it can lead to those things. And maybe even result in a form of malice or, or anger um, by those who are looking on, because, or by those who are, who are keeping up with other people's social media, because you want what that person wants, and they're, they're obviously trying to create. They may be a hypocrite, and that they're creating a version of themselves that maybe isn't as accurate as uh, social media um, would make it look like. So why as a Christian do you long after things? This is a huge question when it comes to envy. We are to be fulfilled in Christ. It says that all that we need um, for life and godliness is found in God's word. Like It's found in the gospel. It's found in what Christ has done for us. We should be fulfilled in these things, and yet we aren't. We are envious of what others have. 
You have a God who created the world, who has provided a way of salvation, who has saved you if you're a believer here, and you want um, the new car that you know so-and-so posted or whatever people want on, online. <laughs> you get the point. Christ is enough, but you're a hypocrite when you're filled with envy over what others have. Slander. This is the last sin that was mentioned by Peter. Slander results when malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy converge and are made manifest in order to attack others. So slander is a way in which you uh, proactively attack others. All these other things, they, they, can be, uh, they can occur internally. While slander is, is really all of these things occurring and then you speaking out against people in a hateful way. You're hating your neighbor when you speak with malice against them, when you're deceitful with your words about them. You expose your own hypocrisy and envy when you slander those around you. So again, these sins all link up. And I think if, if you follow um, Peter's thought process, they really sync up and connect well in that if you're malicious, you're prone to deceit. If you're deceitful, you will often be a hypocrite. If you're a hypocrite, you, you will tend to have envy towards others and that results in slanderous words. I think it gets lost. Uh, slander is any kind of speech that is hateful towards another. We, we need to take that seriously in all areas as Christians. We, don't, um, we aren't a part of a club and we just hate on everyone that isn't a part of our club, right? We're called to love the world. Um, we have to be an example. While some of these, the, the truths of Scripture can be offensive to the world, we obviously have to hold to what God says, but we have to love those who maybe don't understand this yet, who maybe God is still working on, who God hasn't changed yet. We need to be patient. We need to be compassionate and loving. And that's really the answer to all of these is, is love. How do we put these sins away? We're to love others with a brotherly love, as verse 22 of chapter 1 says. We need to exhibit care for believers and unbelievers alike. So how do we exhibit care for believers? We edify, we disciple, we meet together, we, um, we hold each other accountable. We have to sometimes call out sin. We have examples of church discipline all throughout Scripture. We're called to, to hold each other accountable to God's word, but do it in a loving way. Do it in a way that is... Um, there has to be a sincerity behind the words that we say. Um, there has to be a care. We must also drink deeply of the pure spiritual milk which God has provided, as verse 2 of our text said tonight. We ought to read the word, as I've said a hundred times. We must taste the goodness of God through his word and work hard to acquire a stronger desire for it. Maybe you don't have a strong desire to read the word. Work at that. Build up, you know, there was, <laughs> this may not be a great analogy, but there were certain foods that I disliked as a child, and then as I ate them more, you, you start to build a, uh, a desire for that thing that you never liked before. And while, well, obviously that's some type of biological process that has happened in my life, I, the Holy Spirit is the thing that gives us new desires and changes us and gives us new affections. And I would just say, persevere. If you're really having a tough time with scripture, persevere. Do, read smaller chunks. Read a line and just meditate on that. 
That was another thing I wanted to talk about. Meditation um, on God's word is really important. We're constantly stimulated. It's hard to sit and listen to a person um, speak for a while sometimes. <laughs> but it's, it's even harder when you have a phone um, that's constantly taking away your attention. And to sit down and read scripture is tough enough, but to meditate on what you just read, it can be even more difficult. So meditation, meaning quiet time, where you think on God's word, where you, where you soak in it, you allow it to resonate. A lot of people have actually said that, um, I know a lot of people like to read early in the morning, I like to read at night, and I've heard that if you read scripture at night, it actually helps retention, because you have that time of quiet where nothing is going on and you're laying in your bed after you've read. And meditation is the same type of thing. So if you're reading in the morning, allow for five minutes to really think about those things and then do it throughout the day. Um, that's a practical way for us to remember scripture and to know it. So I can plow through six chapters in the morning and go on with my day, but if I hadn't meditated on any of it, if I haven't retained any of it, then it's just like if I, if I read a novel and, um, and it was a great story. So we want to be retaining what God has given us. So in closing, I want to encourage you that if you've fallen into these sins, allow the sweetness of God's word and conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring you to repentance that you may be fully satisfied and nourished in Christ. And if you're not a believer, know that through faith in Christ, you too can taste the goodness of God, overcome sin, and experience eternal glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for how it convicts. I pray that anything that was said tonight um, that, that convicted us, I pray that we would meditate on those things, that we would think on that, and then that we would go to scripture to confirm that it is your word, that this is truly what you say. God, I just pray that with grace and compassion and love, we would um, deal with others, um, that we would be humbled by our sin and that we would recognize that we, we have to repent, we have to turn. If we have a desire for you, if we, we say we identify with you, identify with Christ, then we must live a life where we put away sin and love your word. I pray that you would help us to be nourished this week by your word. You would help us to think on these things and pray with a diligence that you would change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.